Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading today comes from the book of Job, chapter 38, verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the seas with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed bounds for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. So let us turn to the gospel now. We are reading from Mark's telling of this good news from chapters 4 and 5. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great gale arose and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be calm. And the wind ceased and there was dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe, and they said to one another, Who is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now later, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him. He was by the lake. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and he begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians, and she had spent all that she had, but she was no better. In fact, she was worse. She had heard about Jesus, and she came up behind him and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. And immediately, her hemorrhaging stopped. She felt in her body that she was healed of disease. 
Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned to the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you ask, Who touched me? But he looked all around, still, to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter has died. Why trouble this teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why this commotion? The child is not dead, just sleeping. They laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the little girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. And at this, they were overcome with amazement. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what would you say? Did miracles really happen? And do miracles still happen today? I have to admit that when I am presented with this question more often than not, I am tempted to simply say yes and sit back down again. Because to say much more than that is to venture into some very, very deep water. So let's just start there. The most important thing I know about deep water theology I learned from my high school swim teacher. (laughs) Stay with me, I promise we'll get there. (laughs) Miss Massey's swim class was not my favorite part of the day. Some of you might remember that I attended an all-girls Catholic high school down the street in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Every freshman was required to take swim class, and it was worse than you are already imagining. We were lined up on the edge of the pool in our matching navy blue polyester swimsuits with our matching light blue swim caps with our last names lettered across our foreheads. And every time the whistle blew, we were to dive in and swim two lengths of that competition pool. So I'm going to put it this way. Some of us were very graceful in the water. Some of us were less so. Miss Massey, now she was gifted with words, and she said it this way. She said, girls, some of you swim like you're going to make it to the Olympics. And some of you swim like you're not sure you're going to make it to the other side. (laughs) But that's okay, she said. Girls, that's okay because remember this. When the water is truly deep, everyone is just swimming to survive. 
If the water is deep enough, it does not matter if you are a butterflyer or a dog paddler. All that matters is that you keep your head above the water. So I think that there are two main times that we think about miracles. And one is when the water is just fine. When we ask questions or engage ideas for the sake of our curiosity or the pursuit of knowledge and understanding or maybe even just a lively conversation around the dinner table. It's when a blog post or a newspaper article or a Bible study sparks questions and stirs up confusion. And that conversation, it shapes us and it stretches us and it is so important. But the other time that we think about miracles, well, that's when we're swimming to survive. It's when the questions are up close and deeply personal. It's when the world around us is shifting and we are trying desperately to find the light. It's when everything is at stake. It's when the doctor comes back and says, cancer. It's when you realize that mental illness will always be a struggle. It's when fighting escalates or the car crashes or insurance denies the surgery or the latest policy change brings tears to our eyes. It's when church no longer feels like the safest, most secure place you know. That's when the conversation about miracles isn't interested in stretching our minds. All it wants to do is stop the hemorrhaging of our hearts. Now the disciples know what that conversation sounds like and what it feels like. They're caught in a storm that just keeps getting worse and their fearless leader is asleep on the job. Wake up, they say. Have you noticed that we are in trouble out here? Don't you care that we are perishing? A few summers ago, I was working with high school students in Montreat, North Carolina. Now, these students were helping me to lead worship at a conference center, and they were to act out this passage with a modern-day interpretation. Rehearsal was not going well. It was late in the week and early in the morning, and their hearts were not in it. It was a relatively easy script. Each one of them had been assigned one line to repeat over and over again, one imaginary worry that might make a teenager feel alone and afraid. After a number of truly bad rehearsals, one of the students said, could we just rewrite the lines ourselves? And that skit became their finest moment because in front of 1,200 of their peers, six teenagers secretly told the truth. Do you not care that my parents hate each other? Do you not care that I'm bullied every day? Do you not care that my friend is sick? By the time they were done, most of them had tears in their eyes. The Gospel of Mark is written for moments like that, for moments of deep water and hard truth, 
We don't know very much about Mark's community, but we know that they were vulnerable. They were either being persecuted or they were afraid of being persecuted because they knew that it wasn't far off. Do you not care that we are perishing? That's the question behind the miracle question, isn't it? God of grace and God of glory, do you not care? Aren't you going to do something? Would you please give us some indication that we are not in this alone? So if miracles are what you want, the Gospel of Mark is a good place to be because it's full of them. Of Mark's 678 verses, a third of them are about Jesus working miracles. And if you look at the first 10 chapters, over one half of those verses are about miracles. The gospel reading today is a miracle followed by a miracle interrupted by a miracle. It's an embarrassment of riches, frankly. It seems that whatever else Mark wants us to know about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he was a teacher, a preacher, a leader, Mark really wants us to believe, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus makes miracles happen. And I agree. I believe with every fiber of my being that miracles happen. And I am so glad that we have these stories And I used to be so nervous about saying that. Because on more than one occasion, I have had someone ask me that question and then weep at my response. I can't believe in miracles, they say. Because my dad didn't get one. Because my neighbor didn't get one. Because my best friend, she prayed and prayed and prayed and she didn't get one. And I felt utterly incapable of responding to that. Not only because it's gut-wrenchingly true, but the Gospels don't exactly give me much to go on. They provide exactly zero examples of miracles denied. It took me quite some time to come around on this. But I realized that that's exactly the point. When I lived in Richmond, Virginia, a classmate of mine, Jerusha, she had a four-year-old daughter, Misha. And one day, Misha started having trouble seeing. So now fast forward past months and months of hospitalizations and tests and complicated vocabulary, and we get to the bad day. The day when Misha was diagnosed with a rare and aggressive brain tumor in its fourth stage. And so as her doctors prepared her little girl for surgery and chemo and radiation, Jerusha prayed. Friends and family back in India, they prayed around the clock. Every time our seminary community gathered together, we remembered them in prayer. Misha's preschool friends, they cut out crosses and their teachers wrote verses across them. And every day, Jerusha took a picture Of her little girl, she posted an update online, and she closed with these words, Surely your prayers are working. Praise God. 
on good days and on bad days. The very same words. Nine months later, surely your prayers are working. According to her doctors today, Misha has no cancer in her body. And a year after that, surely your prayers are working. Today, Misha is one year cancer-free. And the updates, they keep coming. Misha will have checkups for the rest of her life, but after all these years, the cancer still has not returned. And Jerusha is absolutely convinced that her daughter is alive because of a miracle. But it doesn't always work out that way. My senior year of college, my friend Emily disappeared. Her car disappeared as well, so for a while we weren't too worried. But when the weekend came and went and Emily still hadn't returned, well, that's when everybody started to worry. It wasn't long before the FBI was conducting an investigation, and so prayer services were held on campus around the clock, and staff and students that had never darkened the door of our chapel before were in attendance. We prayed expectantly and we prayed desperately, we prayed loudly and we prayed silently, we prayed for good news. But when the news finally came, it was the very worst kind. Our friend had been found. She was the victim of kidnapping and gun violence. Emily had hoped to become an Episcopal priest. She had volunteered with a prison ministry, and so when their daughter's killer was taken to trial, her parents addressed him in court. They forgave him. They said not because they wanted to. They didn't want to. But Emily would have wanted them to. And when he was sentenced to die by lethal injection, they were the first to publicly protest because their daughter had adamantly opposed the death penalty. And now 18 years later, they are still petitioning on his behalf so that he might live. The Gospels don't offer us any accounts of non-miracles, of near misses, because they don't exist. In the Gospels, the miracle always comes. Now, I wish that I could give you a mathematical explanation or a fancier way to think about it, but all I know is this. The child is healed. The storm is calmed. The paralytic walks, the 5,000 eat, the lepers are cleaned, Lazarus is raised, the demon is cast out. The miracle always comes because God, working in the person of Jesus Christ, always shows up. Now that's not the same thing as saying we all get exactly the miracle we want and we all live happily ever after. I wish that were true, but it's not, and not one of you needs me to tell you that. Their stories are night and day different. Jerusha will tell you her daughter got a miracle. I don't know what Emily's parents would say. 
But what I see is a miracle coming in two sets of parents who have stared death in the eyes and did not let it win. Against all odds, they have all held on to the light. In my high school swim class, I learned this much. When the water gets deep, it is so easy to get disoriented. It is so easy to forget everything that you have learned and panic. So if you are in deep water today, if you are desperate for something to hold on to, friends, hang on to this promise. The miracle is coming. Even if you can't see it or imagine it or believe it, even if you no longer know which way is up, remember this. Resurrection has always done its very best work in the dark. The miracle will come because that is simply God's way in the world. In the midst of deep water, a miracle is not an incredible circumstance. A miracle is being rescued by the love of God that is stronger than any circumstance. And if Mark's miracle-ridding gospel is any indication, they are nowhere near as rare as we are tempted to believe. In fact, the odds are overwhelmingly good that there is one around the corner even now. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.